The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. We want to come back this morning to Romans chapter 12. We're in the implications portion of this marvelous book. We're in the application portion. And uh, you, you will remember that for many years, about three, I think, we, we worked our way through the first 11 chapters and we spent our time dealing with the most detailed description of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament, Romans 1 through 11. We dealt with that marvelous theological treatise on the mercy of God and His work in bringing lost sinners to Himself. In Romans 12, we turned the corner. We turned the corner from doctrine to devotion from principles to practice, from the indicatives to the imperatives, and from the beliefs to the behavior. And this is the way Paul writes. Paul is very uh, typical in this manner. He, he does this in many of his books. He, he starts with the doctrine. He starts with the heavy theological realities. And then he brings to bear upon us the implications and the ways that our lives need to be impacted by those doctrinal truths very important for us to understand that duty always comes out of doctrine. That duty always comes out of doctrine. What you think will eventually dictate how you live, and right living is always based on right principles. And so having laid for us the foundation of the gospel in Romans 1 through 11, Paul now comes to bring to bear upon us the duties, the responsibilities, and the ways that our lives Lives need to be impacted by these truths. Turning the corner in Romans 12, Paul wants to make for us the connection between the mercy of God and the way that that mercy needs to impact how you and I live. Very critical for us to understand that the gospel is meant to affect every single area of your life. The incredible doctrine of Christ and salvation in Him is, is meant to affect your practice. It is meant to change you. It is meant to transform you. It is meant to have a massive impact on every aspect of your life. It's meant to shape everything that you do, every way that you think. It's meant to reorient your priorities, your decisions, your passions, your desires, your emotions, it's meant to shape what you live for. It's meant to affect how you spend your time and your possessions. It's meant to affect how you entertain yourself and how you think about your work and how you approach your singleness and how you approach your marriage. The gospel is meant to permeate every area of your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you are in Christ, you are new, you are different, you have been transformed, and that ought to manifest itself in every area of your life. One of the most noticeable ways and one of the most incredible ways that the gospel changes you is in your relationships. How you relate to people, how you relate to one another, it changes how you view people, it changes the way you engage with people, and it changes how you treat other people. And, and one of the, the first places that God, the gospel is going to do its work in your life is in your relationships with other people. Once that 
vertical relationship is resolved, once that relationship with God is established, then it's going to permeate your horizontal relationships. There are three basic relationships that you have as a believer. The first one is your relationship with God, that vertical relationship. Uh, Your second relationship is the relationship that you have with fellow believers. And then the third relationship is the relationship that you have with people who don't know the Lord. We would say that it's upward, inward, outward. There are upward relationships that you have with God. There is an inward relationship that you have with fellow believers. And there is an outward relationship that you have with unbelievers. And if you think about that, sin has damaged every one of those relationships. Before you came to Christ, you were at odds with God. You were God's enemy. God was not on your side. And through the gospel, that relationship has now been restored. The cross of Christ has restored that that vertical relationship. And now that that permeates every part of your life. It, It permeates how you treat the people sitting around you. It permeates how you approach the people in your life that don't know Christ. We might say it this way. We might say that our identity as Christians is now defined by loving relationships. If you want to get where we're going today, that's where we're going. Our identity as Christians is now defined by loving relationships. Listen to some of these passages. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 to 14 says, As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. So the, the, the defining Mark, now, of us as believers, when it comes to our relationships, is love. We might even say it this way. We we could say it this way, that, that your relationships are a test case for how well the gospel has permeated your life. In other words, you can look at the relationships that you have. You can engage in in evaluating your current relationships with fellow believers and unbelievers and people around you. And and you could use that as a litmus test to determine and distinguish how deep the gospel has penetrated your life. Let me just say it this way. If you have lots of strife in your relationships, if there is discord and there is disunity and there is factions and They've been fractured, and there's broken relationships. Let me just say that you probably don't have a good grasp of the gospel. But the flip side is also true. If you're a person who is now defined by relationships that are healthy and strong and unified and for the most part joyful and a blessing to others, then there's a good chance that the gospel has permeated your life, and you are applying the gospel realities to the present relationships that you have. That's what this next section in Romans chapter 12 is all about. It's all about gospel-shaped relationships. I'm excited 
I'm excited for the next number of weeks, however long it takes us to work through the rest of this chapter, because I am convinced that if we as Maranatha Bible Church truly grasp these principles, it's going to revolutionize our church. And it's going to revolutionize your marriage. It's going to change your parenting. It's going to affect how we treat one another. It's going to affect your, your relationship within your family and your friends and your relationship as a single person, how you, how you treat other people. It's going to radically impact our church. And I'm excited about that because I would guess that most every one of us here this morning have some relationships in our lives that are struggling. Maybe it's the person sitting right next to you. Maybe it's someone in this room that you see and you avoid them. Maybe it's something in your family. Maybe it's someone at work, your neighborhood. All of us have people in our lives that are difficult. We have strained relationships. We have estranged relationships. We have difficult relationships. And, and God knows that we need to hear how the gospel impacts those relationships. And so from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, we are going to embark upon a study of what gospel-shaped relationships look like. You remember how we started this chapter. Look back at the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul begins this implications portion of Romans by, by saying that when, when you grasp the gospel and when you have a good handle on the mercies of God and you truly understand what, what God has done for you in Christ, your life's going to be different. You're going to live as a living sacrifice. You're going to offer yourself to God. You're going to be totally committed and totally devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not going to allow yourself to be conformed and pressed into the mold of this world. In fact, you're going to fight against that worldly pressure by having your mind renewed with the truth of God's Word. And then we saw as... We, you remember from those few weeks before Christmas, verses 3 through 8, Paul deals with the issue of spiritual gifts. And one of the primary ways that you're going to understand and, uh, and manifest your love for Christ is in a commitment to the church. One of the ways that you will demonstrate the fact that you are a living sacrifice is not by doing church by yourself, saying you can go to Starbucks and have church by yourself. No, you're going to be committed to the local church. And you're going to be engaged in spiritual gifts. You're going to serve one another. You're, you're going to be about using your spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. And we dealt with that a lot last time. As we come to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul's going to now bring to bear upon us how the gospel affects your relationships. Follow along as I read the rest of the chapter. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, 
rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does it look like when the gospel affects your relationships? What does it look like when you begin to see other people through the the same lenses that God sees people? What do gospel-shaped friendships look like? What do gospel-shaped relationships within the church look like? What does a gospel-shaped marriage look like? What does a gospel-shaped single person look like? What does gospel-shaped parenting look like? And what does a relationship with the world look like when it's affected by the gospel? We're going to look at that. And I, as I said, believe that this is going to radically impact our interaction with other people. It's going to help us solve some of the conflicts in our life, some of the difficulties in our life. And I believe as well that it's going to promote unity within our church. It's going to grow us. It's going to stretch us. It's going to make us a little uncomfortable because this humbles us. It's going to foster even more sweet spiritual fellowship amongst us as believers And I believe that if we practice these principles laid out in this portion of Scripture, it's going to make us distinct from the world. It's going to help us show the watching world how radically the gospel can affect somebody. And so the potential impact on us is huge. And so we're going to work our way through these verses over the next few weeks. And and because this is the start of a new section, I want to briefly introduce it to you. And I want to make you aware of some things, some observations that I'd like you to note as we prepare to jump into this next section. Some observations. The first observation I'd like you to make is that this is unlike anything we've seen so far in Romans. As I started to read that, you probably noticed that it was different. Something was different. Something is unique about this next section of Scripture. There's something more alien to this section of Scripture than what we've seen so far. Up to this point, we've, we've traversed the weighty and deep theological realities of this book, and we've had long sentences and long paragraphs and lengthy descriptions and, and drawn-out explanations of some of the intricacies of the gospel. And now we come to this section, and it's not like that. It's short, directed, specific, brief, compact statements. What you have here in this section of Scripture is a list, a list of very quick, forceful, 
pointed bullet statements that uh, hit us right between the eyes as we read them, and they come at us one right after another. Boom, boom, boom. You can't get out of one before you're into the next one, and it's one right after the other in rapid-fire succession. One commentator says, Paul fires off a volley of short, sharp injunctions with little elaboration, and he's right. There's not a lot of elaboration here. You don't have a lot of commentary on this. You have the, the statement, and you have the next statement, and the next statement is boom, boom, boom. You're getting hit one right after the other. Twenty-five of them. Twenty-five concrete, practical instructions, a blueprint for gospel-shaped relationships. That's the first thing I want you to notice. It's different. It's different than anything we've seen so far in this book. Second thing I want you to notice is that these are commands, these are instructions. These are injunctions, exhortations. This is not something that you can just kind of say, well, that's good advice, but it's not for me. This is not just advisable conduct. These are not just mere suggestions. It's not just kind of the best way to win friends and influence people. That's not what this is about. These are specific exhortations and admonitions. These are biblical requirements for all believers. And if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is what God requires of you in your relationships. You say, I'm not sure I want someone telling me what to do with my relationships. Well, God's going to tell you what to do with your relationships. He's going to lay the standard out for you of what it looks like for your relationships to be formed by and shaped by the Lord Jesus Christ. And You can't wiggle out of this. It is clear. It is direct. This is not just for the spiritually elite. This is not just for some special category of Christians. This is for you and for me and how we deal with one another. The third thing I want you to notice, not only is it different than what we've seen so far, not only is it filled with commands, but I also want you to thirdly notice that there's no necessary order to these instructions. I spent some time this week reading through this and reading through this and reading through this. And if you know me, you know I love outlines. Uh, there should be one up there coming. Uh, we love outlines. We like it clear. We like it concise. This is hard to outline. It's difficult because they're kind of just all thrown together and scrambled and mixed up. And, and I've tried to outline as best as I can, but there's not a really clear, concise theme that pulls all of this together. It's just kind of all shotgun. One writer says there are a few conjunctions or particles to indicate the flow of thought. And it is often not clear on what principles, if any, Paul has organized his various admonitions. This apparently haphazard arrangement makes it especially difficult to pinpoint the theme of the passage. I think he's right. One other commentator says the section is quite loosely structured, and one must be careful about imposing any definite schema on the text. It's hard to figure out what's the overarching theme that flows through this. But I think there's a basic structure. Let me give it to you so you can kind of maybe just write this down and see where we're going over the next few weeks. So here it is. A basic structure. Verses 9 to 16 deal with how we love other believers. Verses 9 to 16, our love for other believers. Verses 17 to 21, our love for unbelievers. I think that's about as good as you can get. Uh, that's the outline of the basic structure that we're going to see over the next few weeks. Verses 9 to 16, how we treat fellow Christians. Notice in verse 10, the words one another occur twice. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 
It's the one another's. It's how we treat each other. Look at verse 10. We just read it. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It's how we treat each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. Look down to verse 13, the word saints, contributing to the needs of the saints. He's dealing in these opening verses with how the church relates to each other. And then skip down to verses 17 to 21. The second major section here is how we treat the world. How we deal with those outside of Christ, outside of the church, outside of the gospel. How, how do we deal with them? Notice verse 17, the word evil. Never pay back evil to anyone. We, how do we treat those who de- deal with us evilly? Look at verse 19, the word revenge. Never take your revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. Look at verse 20, the word enemy occurs. And then verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see the emphasis? The emphasis is on how you deal with people who hate you. So, this is the basic structure. One other thing I want you to notice about the structure, look at the first verse and the last verse. Look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then notice how it ends. Verse 21, do not overcome evil or be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do Christians treat people? What's a godly marriage? Family? What does it look like? Characterized by love and doing good. And everything between these two verses, everything between verses 9 and 21, form for us an explanation of what that looks like. Those two verses are the bookends. They're the brackets to this passage. And everything that comes in between defines for us what gospel-shaped relationships look like. One writer says, each staccato imperative adds a fresh ingredient to the apostle's recipe for love. Do you want to know how to better love? This text tells us. And let me just say that you need to hear this. And I need to hear this. Every one of us needs to hear these next 13 verses because you... And I are prone to selfishness. Let's just admit it. Let's just get it on the table. Let's just say it what it is. You and I are prone to selfishness. And people bother us. Right? Just admit it. There's people in your life that are a nuisance. And they're hard to deal with. And they bother you and they get on your nerves. And let's face it as well that at some times, don't point fingers. I see some of you pointing fingers. None of that. You need to hear what I'm about to say. We're less than gracious. Sometimes we're less than gracious than how we deal with one another. Our selfishness gets in the way. Our pride gets hurt. The words come out. The attitude comes out. And we are less than kind in how we deal with others. You need to hear this. Our church needs to hear this. Your family needs to hear this. And I need to hear this. And so over the next few weeks, we're just going to march through this. Here's my proposition. Are you ready? 25 evidences of gospel-shaped relationships. How's that for a proposition? And we're going to cover all of them today. I'm just kidding. That's not true. 
we're going to work our way over the next few weeks through 25 evidences of gospel-shaped relationships. I hope you come. And I hope and I pray that God continues to work in our church and in our families and in your heart individually and my heart as well as we begin to apply these principles. So let's dive into this. Number one, a sincere love. A sincere love. And I want you to notice how Paul begins verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. If you have a ESV, it says, let love be genuine. The NIV, let love or love must be sincere. Mark this down. The first evidence of a gospel-shaped relationship is that it's a loving relationship. We need to begin there because the world that we live in has no idea what love is about. They think they do. Our world thinks it has a handle on what the world, uh, what, what love is. But you know as well as I do that the world has confused sex with love. And our world has confused infatuation with love. And our world has confused sentimentalism with love and mushy emotion with love. A number of years ago, I did a series for our college students back in Spokane, and uh, I was speaking on the topic of love, and I, I wanted to help our students understand that the fact that our world really doesn't get love. So I illustrated this with a number of lines from some secular songs. Here you go. Here's a few of them. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. That's pretty mushy. Is that love? Is it just you're my inspiration? Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. That's not love, that's stalking. Close your eyes, give me your hand, do you feel my heart beating, do you understand, do you feel the same, or am I only dreaming, is this burning an eternal flame? That's just weird. That's not love. I said I loved you, but I lied because this is more than love I feel inside. What is that? The world has no concept what love is. It's temporary. It's transitory. It comes, it goes. It's infatuation. It's sex. It's emotive. It's attractional. Let's admit it. Even sometimes we don't know what love is. I mean, we use the word love for everything. I love hiking in the mountains. It's wonderful. I love college football. I love my wife's chocolate chip cookies. I love my wife more than her chocolate chip cookies. We use the word love for everything from the mundane to the important. What is this love? Let love be without hypocrisy? What is this? As you know, there's three types of love that uh, used in the Greek language to refer to the concept of love. There's the word eros, which is the love of emotion and the love of passion, the love of physical desire, this sexual love, this earnest 
uh, um, lust-driven kind of emotion. That's eros, not used in the Scriptures. And then there is the, the Greek word phileo, the, the kind of love of liking, the love of friendship, the love of caring, the love that serves another person, the love of tender affection. You can see it down in verse 10, used in the concept of brotherly love. And then there is that term agape, which is the term Paul uses here, this love of choice, this love of action, this love of commitment, this love of selflessness and sacrifice and complete devotion to another person regardless of the circumstances. That's agape love. Selfless, sacrificial love, a love of choice, a love of action, a love that's not based on emotions and feelings and attractions. It is a God-like love because this is the way God loved us. For God so loved the world that He felt emotions. For God so loved the world that He gave. That's the kind of love that Paul has in mind here, a deliberate love that decides it will keep on loving even if it's not returned. It's a love driven by humility. It is a love that cares for others more than yourself. Mark that down. This kind of love is a love that cares more for others than yourself. It is this love that Paul is referring to here in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. And he clarifies for us and he describes for us what this kind of love looks like when it's in the context of gospel-shaped relationships. It's love without hypocrisy. It's sincere love. It's genuine love. Very interesting. This word hypocrisy, without hypocrisy, anupokritos. Anupokritos. From two words, an and hupokrites. Explain that to you. The word an or a means not. And the word hypocrites is where we get our word hypocrisy or hypocrite. And so literally it is, as the NASB defines it, without hypocrisy. What was a hypocrites? A hypocrites in that culture was a, an actor. Someone who was on the stage. Someone who played a part. Someone who put on a mask Someone who took on a role that was not actually them. It was them in costume. It was them in character. It was them engaged in a, in a play or a, an actor uh, situation or a theatrical performance where, where they made a mask and they wore a mask and, and they, they acted out something that they weren't actually in reality. That's a hypocrites. And over time, that word came to refer to someone who acted hypocritically. Someone who acted with pretense, or a facade, or a sham, or someone who looked one way on the outside, but was actually different on the inside. And so Paul says, when, when you have to think about how you love one another, it has to be without that hypocrisy. Pure, genuine, with integrity, from the heart. Get off the stage and drop the mask kind of love. The NIV says it must be sincere. Sincere. The English word sincere comes from the Latin word sincera, which literally means without wax. Say, why is that important? 
That's important because in that day there were pottery sellers and they would make their pottery and, and sell their wares and uh, sometimes those pottery pieces would be very cheaply made and they would get cracked and, and chipped and they would get pockets and holes in them and, and the really dishonest vendors of that day would fill those things up, those cracks and those holes with wax and they would seal it and they would paint over it and they would sell it as if it was some quality product even though it's filled and, 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 and repaired by wax. So the genuine potty, potter, pottery makers uh, would stamp something on there called without wax, sin Sarah, meaning it's the real deal. It is without addition. It's not been doctored. And, and so this is the idea. Paul says when, when you are a believer and you truly have been impacted by the gospel, your, your love needs to be sincere. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be pure. It needs to be without hypocrisy, lacking in pretense, unfeigned. It can't be the pretend kind of love. It can't be a fake kind of love. It can't be a superficial kind of love. It can't be a, a sham love or a, or a counterfeit love or a faked love or an empty love. It, it can't be a love where, where someone might say to you, your deeds speak so loudly that I can't hear your words. God expects from us an authentic kind of love, a sincere love, a love without selfishness, a love without guile, a love that focuses on the needs and the welfare of others. So I ask you, is that you? Do an inventory right now. Inventory your relationships. Inventory your family. Inventory your fellow believers' relationships. Genuine? Pure? Sincere? There's a couple other places in Scripture where this word is used, this word without hypocrisy. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says, In purity and knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, genuine love. He says, We came to you treating you in knowledge and patience and kindness and in genuine love without any hypocrisy or insincerity in our hearts. 1 Peter 1, verse 22 says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. How should believers treat one another? With a fervent love from the heart. This is how we love. And we love this way because this is the way God has loved us. Do you really think that you were something special? That God saw in you something more incredible than anyone else and chose to set his affections on you because of that? You really think that? Not a chance. God loved us when we were the most unlovable. And if you do a quick survey of the word love in the book of Romans, every, almost every instance of the word love up to this point in this book has been used to describe the love that God has had for us. Listen to some of these verses, Romans 5, verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, the end of the chapter, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? In all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Nothing will separate us, neither height nor depth nor created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. 
Paul is not asking us to do something that hasn't already been shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold your finger here and just go over just a, a little bit to the right, Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. Let me, let me show you that having now explained in this book already the love of God for us, Paul is going to admonish us to be the kind of people who show that same kind of love towards others. Look at Romans 13 verse 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except what? To love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Look over to chapter 14, verse 15. Romans 14, verse 15 says, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. How do you treat others? With love. Back to Romans chapter 12. This love that we are to demonstrate to one another is the same kind of love that Christ has shown us. John chapter 13, he picked up a basin and a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. And later on in that chapter, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15, verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Remember when Christ was asked by a, a lawyer, a theologian, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What did Jesus say? He says, you can boil the whole Old Testament. All, all, all the commands, all the Ten Commandments, all the instructions given in the Old Testament, you can boil it down to two. Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments 1 through 4 are summed up in the first one. Commandments 6 through 10 are summed up in the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We need to hear this. Because I think sometimes we think we are being externally nice and we're kind on the outside and on the inside. Our hearts are really saying, I don't really like you. You really bother me. You're a nuisance to me. Sometimes we fake it. We pretend that we love someone on the outside, but inside we really despise them, maybe even hating them to the point that we're just pretending. We're just putting on a nice facade because we want things to look good and we want to make it look like we've got things together. And so we have this nice external whitewashed image on the outside and yet on the inside. Our hearts despise that person. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, despite its simplicity, it is not easy to put into practice because much of our life is shot through with hypocrisy. Our culture encourages us to live an image the media repeatedly presents us with people pretending to be something that they are not and so tempt us to take up masks ourselves to counterfeit a love we do not possess. 
Most of us can affect civilities that appear to be utterly sincere, though they actually cover hostility. We even deceive ourselves into thinking that we have love for people we neglect. In fact, do not even like. Wow. That's convicting. If we're real honest with ourselves, all of us have people in our life that we simply love with hypocrisy. And Paul says you need to get beyond that. That's not biblical love. That's not agape love. That's a sham love. That's a hypocritical kind of love. Perhaps the best explanation of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to turn there, but just before we do that, I want you to notice a connection between this and 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to notice that in Romans chapter 12, in verses 3 through 8, Paul deals with the issue of spiritual gifts. We've already spent a lot of time on that. We worked through the spiritual gifts. And then the very next phrase out of his pen in verse 9 is, let love be without hypocrisy. So he makes a connection in Romans 12 between spiritual gifts and their exercise in an attitude of love. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, he does the very same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts. It's all about how we serve one another. You can see the end of chapter 12, verse 28. He deals with apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and gifts of healings and helps and administrations and various kinds of tongues. Verse 29, he deals with apostles and prophets and teachers and workers of miracles. And verse 30, healings and speaking of tongues. We've dealt with all that. We've already worked through all that. So he's dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts. And what's the attitude that needs to prevail or prevail in the attitude of these gifts or the exercise of these gifts? Chapter 13 tells us. Same principle. Romans 12, he deals with spiritual gifts and love. We come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, he deals with spiritual gifts. And chapter 13 is an entire chapter on the attitude of love. And I want to talk through this a little bit with you. I want you to ask yourself, do you love like this? Verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and all, know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And so Paul begins this marvelous chapter, which oftentimes we hear read at weddings, which it's really not a wedding chapter. It's a chapter on how you and I relate to one another in the church. He opens this by showing us just how important love is and the emptiness and the futility of ministering to one another without love. And then, you know, this famous next section, verses 4 through 7, he describes for us what this love looks like. Love is patient. It's long-suffering. It realizes that at times people and circumstances are difficult and love understands that and love is willing to be patient in the midst of those circumstances and those people. It's patient. It's kind. Love is kind. We could just say it this way, love is nice. Love is nice to others. Love's not mean. 
Love doesn't hurt people with their words. Love doesn't be harsh. Love helps. Love uplifts. Love serves. Love encourages. Love looks for ways to, to build people up rather than run people down. Are you nice? That just seems so simple and so basic, but that's the idea. Are, are you nice to your spouse, to your kids, to the people sitting around you? Verse 4, love is not jealous. Jealousy, as you know, you, you want something that someone else has. In fact, you may want it so much that you'll do whatever it takes to get. That's how you know if you have an idol in your heart. You sin to get it, or you sin when you don't get it. That's how you know something has so grabbed onto your heart and put roots down so deeply into your heart that it's now become an idol. You either sin to get it, or you sin because you don't get it. And Paul says, jealousy has no place in the life of a loving Christian. The person who loves like this the right way is glad when other people win honors. It's glad when other people are affirmed. It's glad when other people are praised. It's glad when, when other people are lifted up and get their recognition instead of you. The, the true love rejoices in that. It's not jealous. It's not arrogant. Brag. This is what the world does. The world is full of boasters, right? We live in a world of boasters. Everyone's doing what they can to climb the ladder. Everyone's doing what they can to build a name for themselves. Everyone's doing what they can to, to draw some recognition to themselves. They, they want to be applauded by the world. This is what drives the world. It's full of people calling attention to themselves. And love says, you know what? That's not important. I'm not arrogant. I want what's best for you. I want to serve you. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love, listen, love never, ever asks someone to do something that is sinful or inappropriate. Period. Love never acts unbecomingly. Love never causes someone to do something that's questionable. Love never wants to make you push yourself or someone else across the line into sin. Love never does that. And if it is, it's not love. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. That's what the world does. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What do I get? What do I get? If I do that, what, what do I get out of it? Not biblical love. It's not selfish. It's looking to serve others. It doesn't exist for its own benefit. It looks for ways to serve others like Christ came to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. You are most loving when you're a servant, not seeking your own. Love is not provoked. Literally, it's not stirred up to anger. It doesn't respond in anger. It doesn't have a short fuse. It doesn't blow up at the moment's notice of something not going your right or your way. It's not irritable. It's not touchy. Love is not provoked. I remember a number of years ago reading a little story about a little boy who had lost his temper a number of times, and his dad came to him and said, Son, I'm giving you a bag of nails, and every time you lose your temper, I want you to go into the backyard and pound a nail into that fence. 
The first day, that little boy pounded 37 nails into that fence. Over the next few weeks, he learned to control his anger, and the number of nails that he hammered into that fence gradually dwindled down, and he discovered it was easier to hold his temper than to go pound nails into that fence. And the day finally came when the boy didn't lose his temper at all, and so he told his father about it, and his dad suggested that he now go out and pull out one nail for each day that he was able to hold his temper. And so this went on for a while. The days passed. The young boy was able to tell his dad finally that he, all the nails were gone. He had pulled them all out. And his, his dad took him by his hand and walked out to that fence. And he says, good job, son. But I want you to see the holes in the fence. The fence will never be the same. And when you say things in anger, they leave a scar, just like this one. You can put a knife in a man and draw it out. It won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, the wound is still there, and a verbal wound is as bad as a physical one. Anger hurts people. Anger stabs people. Anger destroys people. And it leaves scars that never go away. Biblical love's not like that. Biblical love is not provoked. It's patient. Verse 5, he goes on to say, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't keep a list. Biblical love doesn't have a, a diary or a journal of all the statistics of how that person has offended you. It doesn't pull it out in the midst of a fight and say, look, this, 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 this. Look, I've got the record. No, 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 no. Biblical love doesn't do that. Biblical love is not vindictive. It doesn't hold grudges. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Biblical love never entertains itself with the things that Christ died for. Biblical love never puts yourself or another person in a situation where you are entertained by the things that put Christ on the cross. It rejoices with the truth, meaning it loves Scripture, it loves what the Word of God says, it, it loves the, the truths found in the Word of God, it bears all things, meaning it protects the other person, it believes all things, it's never suspicious, it always believes the best, it's never prying underneath the surface to try not find ulterior motives, no, it believes the best about someone, it hopes all things, it's always willing to forgive and it endures all things at all, it will never give up, it will be there outlasting anything. That's love. So I ask you, is that you? As you think about the relationships you have in your life, your home, this church, in your neighborhood, is that you? Let, let, let me tighten the screws a little bit more. Let, let, let me have you read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7 with your name in it. Todd is patient. Todd is kind, not jealous. Todd does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. Todd does not seek his own. He's not provoked. Todd does not take into account a wrong suffered. Todd does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Todd bears all things. Todd believes all things. Todd hopes all things. Todd endures all things. Put your name in that list and evaluate. Is that you?
Go back to Romans chapter 12. Because this is exactly what Paul is talking about in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. You know what that means? Let me just close here with some implications. What does that mean for our church? It means for our church that if someone hurts you, you don't start keeping track of that and start to hold a grudge and start to think unkindly about that person and avoid that person here on Sunday mornings and, and wish that they would sit in another place so you wouldn't have to see them. Love says, no, 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 no. Love says when, when that happens, you resolve it. You love that person from the heart, genuinely, without hypocrisy. And if it's not there, you pray for the Lord to work in your heart and you go to that person and you resolve it. Imagine what our church would be like. I'm not saying there's problems here. I'm just saying we can all grow in this area. Imagine what your small group would be like. If this kind of love permeated your group and you treated one another with exactly this kind of love without defilement, without hypocrisy, without insincerity. What about some implications for your family? I believe the best place to practice this may also be the hardest place to practice this. The people you live with day in and day out, the people that are closest to you, the people who, whom you share a home with, I believe that's where you need to practice this first and foremost. You say, you don't know my spouse. <laughs> no conditions. You don't get a pass. Is your marriage this way? Husbands, do you love your life this way? Wives, do you love your husband this way? Parents, do you love your kids like this? Kids, do you love your parents like this? Genuinely, with sincerity in your hearts? And then how about some, just some implications for your own sanctification? God may... God may allow that difficult person in your life for a reason. In fact, God may have ordained by His sovereign plan for you to be out of fellowship or to be in a relationship with someone who's a very difficult person and a struggle for you for the purpose of growing you in your love for Christ and your understanding of the gospel. It just may be that God wanted that to take place so that you can begin to apply the gospel to that relationship in a way that you never have before. You say, I can't love that person like that. That's the way God loved you. Well, that's number one. <laughs> I promise you we will not make this a 25-week series We'll go a little faster, but do you see how wonderful this is going to be for our church? As we embark upon these next ones over the next few weeks, we're going to flesh this out, and we're going to see exactly what this looks like for us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, need, we need this. We really need this. We need to be instructed by these truths. We confess that, Lord, many times our relationships are dominated by pride and selfishness and sinfulness. 
And instead, they need to be dominated by grace and love and patience and kindness and mercy. Lord, your gospel has come to us when we were most undeserving. And that gospel now needs to be extended to those in our life that we think are most undeserving. And so thank you for these gospel realities. Teach us. Drive these realities deep into our heart. And may the relationships characterized here at Maranatha be gospel-shaped. For your honor and glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.